Today on the Religion of Speed podcast, I am joined by Tommy Boylo. Tommy is a professional racing instructor and race car driver. He is making his first run up Pikes Peak International Hill Climb this year. So we discuss hit the race, his past racing experience, and a few other things. Before we get into it, I just wanted to let you know there are a few audio hiccups in this episode. Unfortunately, we had to record it while Tommy was driving, and of course, it didn't want to cooperate. But the episode still came out great, and it was a great conversation, and still definitely worth listening to. Right now, on the Religionist Me Podcast. All right, welcome to the Religion of Speed podcast. Joining me today is Tommy Boylo. What's up, Tommy? How you How you doing? Hey, man, what's going on? I'm doing pretty well. Just uh, Pikes Peak and uh, living that dream, getting getting down to the nitty gritty, and it's uh, it's about go time. Yeah, you're getting getting right down to it, and uh, yeah, I want to get to Pikes Peak in a little bit because that's like that's a really exciting thing, especially for anybody who you know drives cars in Colorado. I think Pikes Peak is one of the the pinnacles. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's right there in our backyard, right? Right. Uh, but first I just kind of want to ask you some questions, a little more background of you. Cause you've been, you've been pretty much racing your whole life, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I was born into a racing family. Obviously most people that know me probably know my dad as well. Um, my mom and dad met at a racetrack when they were little kids. I think they were 12 and 13 years old because both of their dads were at the track racing. So um, born into a racing family, third generation on both sides, and uh, fortunately, my dad put me in a go-kart from a very young age. I think the first year I was in karts, I was seven years old, and uh, once again, fortunately, from a very young age, I kind of had a knack for it, so I've uh, been doing it ever since, and uh, just always had a passion for it. Yeah, so the one question I, I was going to ask everybody that comes on this podcast, and you kind of answered it there, but maybe it's a little bit different. Um but when when did you realize that cars, or I guess in this case racing, were going to play a really important part in your life? Um, I mean, a lot of it was, in a way, not necessarily my choice. I mean, obviously my dad <laughs> had always intended my brother and I to uh, have cars involved in our life, or especially racing. Um, so, I mean, he gave us the opportunities to get into motorsport from a very young age, and um, like I said, I mean, I really fell in love with it and had a knack for it from a young age. So, um, I mean, I won a championship in my first year of karting and, um, I really think the first time I ever stood on the podium in my first or second race, it really kind of clicked that this is something I wanted to try to pursue because it's fun. And there's uh, a few lucky ones of us that actually make a living doing it. Yeah. It's uh, a very few, but that, that's kind of amazing. Your first season out there, you won the championship. Yeah, it was, it was honestly, I mean, we were just a local kind of karting championship within the state of Colorado, and we started out in little Comer 80 carts. Uh, we just kind of had a used hand-me-down cart and went out there, and there was a couple guys that honestly thought I was cheating, and uh, it was a sealed motor rule. Everything was very, very spec, but um, as with any other sport, I mean, there's always going to be those what we call soccer moms, and in this case, it's the racing dads, yep. and they were, uh, they were ruthless, man, but we went out there and... Uh, Won, won a championship and it was it was awesome i mean kind of right away my dad saw it my grandfather saw it we all kind of knew that um, i had the potential to have something special yeah that that's really awesome uh you you mentioned your grandpa and i wanted to ask you uh, a few weeks ago i saw you post some pictures on facebook of the honda race car that 
he had built, I think is what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, my grandfather, he's, he passed away when I was uh, fairly young, but, uh, he was really the one that started racing, um, in our family, especially on my dad's side. Um, they all called him Honda Bob. He was Bob Boylo Jr. And he was the first ever person to take a Honda streetcar from the dealership and turn it into a race car in North America. So it's the first ever Honda race car built in North America. It's a 74 Honda Civic 1200, um, known as Tojo or Tokyo Joe. <laughs> and it was just a awesome little car, man. I mean, it was from, from the dealership, never turned a single mile on the street. Turned it to a race car and ran it for a number of years, uh, an SECA competition through uh, the runoffs of Road Atlanta numerous times and local racing here in Colorado. We had that thing all over the country. Um, and it was it was so cool. I mean, I hadn't seen that car since I was really young because um, after my grandfather passed away, we actually donated the car to the American Honda Museum because that's really where it all started. I mean, that car was the first ever Honda race car. So. Yeah, uh, to get it out of the museum, back at a racetrack, and see it in person. Now that I've been uh, having some success in my own racing, it was really, really cool. Yeah, so all the Honda boys out there owe a big uh, bout of gratitude to your grandpa. Started the whole Honda scene pretty much here in North America. Oh yeah, especially with that Grid Life crew. I mean, a lot of those guys are. That whole thing kind of started with a Honda enthusiast page. So. Yeah, I know the Gridlife guys did start with a bunch of Hondas. They started in the Midwest there, a bunch of Honda boys. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there was there was a whole flock of those guys that were just enamored with that car. I mean, a lot of those guys knew every fact about that car, that it was the <laughs> to ever go to Talladega and things like this. And uh, they knew all these stories of my grandfather, which is really cool because they were always kind of stories that I heard growing up, hearing them from my dad. But um, to kind of have those be in a way kind of legendary my grandfather was a legend in their eyes it was yeah that that's not something really, really cool you know most most people get most of our grandpas are you know legends in our own eyes but not in not in others so all right yeah it was definitely a humbling experience to have people meet me and just be in awe that i was this bob yeah so yeah you you definitely have the racing blood in you i mean going from all the way from your grandpa to just, I, I guess that's probably why you won your first championship. You just, you were destined to do it. Right. I guess it's, <laughs> it's something that's kind of in your blood, right? I like to, I like to imagine it like a lot of people can sit down with a pen and pencil and, or a pen and paper and draw beautiful drawings and that sort of thing. I can barely draw a stick figure. Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. I am curious, where are you driving to, Tommy? Because I have never heard this bad of reception in Colorado. Um, I am just driving on I-25. So I'm coming from PPIR, just heading back up north. I live up in Colorado Springs. So I'm, I'm kind of going through those dips right, right by Fort Carson right now. So I think usually from here north, I should be pretty... Oh, okay. I mean, that's just something we got we got to deal with. I, I'm not too worried about it. It's just kind of funny. Yeah, so you've been driving for a really long time. You have been doing driving instructing for a really long time. Um, and you've driven a lot of different cars in that amount of time, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, pretty much anything you can imagine, obviously. You started in the carts and driven everything from kind of any sports car you can imagine, any exotic car you can imagine, both street car and race car versions of all that, and then 
Indy cars, NASCARs, rallycross cars, the semi truck series. Uh, yeah, you name it. I've probably driven it. So out of all of those, which one would you say was the scariest one to drive? Oh man. Um, so there's, there's probably two cars that really, truly scared me in my experience driving. One of which was a, uh, 1996 Buick Turbo Indy car. So I believe it was actually the car that Tony Stewart put on pole that year at Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the 500. Oh, wow. Um, and this car was one of the old turbo cars that was actually turned out to be a little bit of a cheater car. It was kind of overboard a little bit. <laughs> um, but the car was like 960 wheel horsepower. And with me in it was something like 1,300 pounds. Oh, my goodness. So it was just absolutely ridiculous. But the scary thing was just the amount of turbo lag that thing had. I mean, once it's spooled, you better hope your point of where you want to go because it's going to certainly take off. Um, so that car was pretty scary. I mean, around PPIR, the one mile oval we were doing probably 190 mile an hour top speed. And then the tires were actually dry rotted around the sidewall at the time. Didn't have much confidence in it, but I was like, what, 15, 16 years old at the time, I think. So oh yeah. You had no fear. fear. Yep. <laughs> throw it into the corner and see what happens. So, um, I don't know if it was necessarily scary at the time, but looking back on it now, realizing how fast that really is and what the equipment really was based on the tires. Um, that was kind of scary. Um, the other car that I wouldn't say it was necessarily the car that scared me. It was just the moment that I had in the car completely scared me. Um, there's this guy that runs in the Optima search for the ultimate streetcar series. His name is Mike DeSold. Awesome, awesome dude. Um, and he's got this first gen Camaro that he, it's basically a tube frame car that has something like 1200 horsepower in it. Is that the red so, one? No, it's, no. it's actually kind of painted up to look like a old World War II plane. It's all hand-painted murals. There's like a pinup girdle on the side. Oh, okay. I think I know which one you're talking about then. So, um, super awesome car, and this thing is just an absolute rocket ship. Um, honestly, I, I think it pulled just as hard, if not maybe just a little less aggressively than the Indy car. <laughs> um, so we were running that, getting ready. Yeah, it was ridiculous. Um, it's got a really cool traction control system in it too. So you can kind of just mat the gas and the thing just takes off at its own leisure. Um, but we were doing some testing before the Optima event, I think last year or year before. And I was driving that car with Mike actually riding in the passenger seat and being a race car driver that's driven all these different things. I mean, anything that can get going fast in that much of a hurry, you expect to be able to turn into a corner at really speed as well. The Optima Series, you're running on basically a street. By the time I took out of turn nine or bidding into turn, turn one, I grabbed fifth gear, which I think is geared for a little over 160 miles an hour. And the street tires that it's riding on weren't really prepared for that. So I turned into the corner, the back end starts kind of crabbing out, and I end up just dropping the thing into fourth gear, matting it, and just burying it, basically a full drift all the way around the oval, turns one and two at PPIR. Oh, man. Uh, so so especially since it wasn't my car and it was right before the TV show was supposed to film and everything, I, I was pretty nervous. I thought for sure I was rubbing the right rear corner off of this thing, but I uh, kept it off the wall and then with shaky hands told Mike I was pulling her into the pits. <laughs> yeah, for, for those listening and don't know, PPIR is a, as a NASCAR oval around. So basically drifted it through a, you know, whole turn, whole two turns of a NASCAR oval. Yeah, and when you don't own it and you, you know, I, I could see yeah. that being a little sketchy. 
man it was a moment and that thing's just such like a one-off piece of art too i was like oh my god this is the prettiest car here and i'm gonna put it in the fence like an idiot but <laughs> yeah thankfully i managed to by some miracle keep it off the wall and lay a lot of smoke and According to the guys that were watching down in the infield, they said it looked pretty dang cool as well. So there's always that. Well, I've seen you drive before. You're definitely good at drifting. So luckily you have that. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> so, yeah, you definitely drive a lot of a lot of race cars, uh, some scary ones. But what do you drive just as your daily driver? <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm kind of the guy that doesn't hold on to a street car for very long. I seem to go through them really quickly. Um, so let's see, I've, I've been driving on the street for about nine years now and I've gone through probably maybe 10 cars. <laughs> uh, Sounds about right. But right now I just, drive, I just drive a GMC pickup. Uh, prior to this, I had a Ford Raptor. I've had Jeeps, BMWs, Datsuns, uh, man, what else have I had? Nissans. I mean, you name it as far as like just kind of the typical Colorado car, whether it be a Nissan Xterra or a Jeep or a truck, I've probably had it. And. Uh, when I was living down in Phoenix doing the Bondurant thing, uh, instructing down there, uh, I had a BMW M3 for a little while. So I've had a couple of fun cars. It always seems to go in waves, though. It's like I'll get something fun and fast and then want a truck or a Jeep or something and kind of just bounce back and forth between that pattern. Yep. Well, luckily, you get your fix for fast cars, you know, with all your track experience. So, you know, you, you, yeah, exactly. you can buy your truck and do some off-roading, too. Get a little yeah. taste of everything. Yeah, it's honestly probably a good thing to keep me out of something fast on the street because although I do get it out of my system in a way, there's always that heavy right foot that'll kind of sneak up on you. Oh, yeah. I think I think all the people listening to this and myself included all suffer from that a little bit. All right. So I do want to get into talking about Pike's Peak because that's coming up in just what? Not very long. Right. Our first day on the mountains actually a week from today. So we, we basically they do three days or four days of testing or testing slash practice and qualifying and then uh, sun, <clears throat> a week from Sunday's race day. So it's, it's coming up quick. Uh, now the car that you guys built for Pikes Peak, it's an old NASCAR chassis, correct? Yeah, it's a 2014 Chevy SS. Um, so it was actually run, it was made and built in the furniture row racing shop um, by the furniture row racing guys back when Martin Truex was driving with them. I think it was one of their first years with Martin on the team. Um, but yeah, it's a full-blown NASCAR cup car. Um, I don't know if this car ever actually competed in the circuit. We don't know all the exact information about this particular chassis. Um, but it still had the bright orange 78 furniture row scheme on it when we got the car. And um, since then, we've kind of stripped it. It's still currently just matte black. But we're going to be getting decals put on the car either tomorrow or day after. Um, but we basically took that NASCAR that was made to turn left and go 200 miles an hour and... Uh, took out the race engine because those things aren't really made to last very long if you're stressing them like we would be at pike's peak right um so we took a one of the motorsport ls3s just a crate engine from gm bolted a turbo kit to it which was uh, a bit of a process in itself and and then uh made a bunch of adjustments to the car and found the right suspension pieces to um, make the thing go left and right and up a super steep mountain <laughs> Where I'm guessing there were a lot of custom pieces that need to be made to get that thing to do that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a there's there's a ton of different components. I mean, if you look at some of the stuff those guys run, I mean, it's, it'll be different for every single track they go to, whether it be suspension components, especially tires, and I mean anything you can think of. There, there's specific things for every track, so we can kind of dig through some of our parts that we have laying around for those cars and 
find a setup that was uh, that kind of worked for us. So there was still a lot of custom fab, but a lot of it was in a way kind of plug and play as well. Yeah, because I don't follow NASCAR very closely, but that year I think they were still doing road courses then, right? I don't know if they still are now. Right. So yeah, they still run a couple road courses. They run Watkins Glen and Sonoma. Okay. Um, so those tracks are were kind of a good litmus test to kind of see what components we're going to need. Um, being able to consult with a lot of the guys from the furniture road team itself, it was, it was really helpful. And, um, they've been a pretty instrumental part of getting this project up and rolling as well. That's cool that you got some factory support. Now, why did you choose a, a NASCAR chassis? Was it just something that kind of fell in your lap? Um, in a way. Yeah. Um, a lot of it was, we kind of, we're trying to get a couple programs down at Pikes Peak International Raceway PPIR where I work. Um, we're trying to get some of those cars to be involved in some sort of a driving program. So in a way, it's a good marketing push. Um, and having a connection with those furniture racing guys, it was just another kind of last hurrah for them now that they're no longer an active team. Yeah. Um, as well as I think it's just kind of that, that appeal to a lot of the people that maybe don't necessarily watch Pikes Peak. I mean, that NASCAR crowd probably isn't one that knows anything about the race itself. So to maybe bring a new audience to that race and broaden their horizons was just another way to look at it. Yeah, that's true. And then also to show the people that, you know, watch the Pikes Peak race that, hey, these NASCAR chassis, they are capable of more than just turning left. Right. And then, uh, I mean, they're they're bad boy cars. I mean, they're no joke. The car that we're racing now, I mean, it's, it's not exactly like what you would see on the NASCAR circuit, but um, like I said, I mean, it's the same chassis and everything. Um, the cars are pretty versatile. So you got the car and it's almost ready to go. So how are you actually preparing for the race? Um, so obviously having Pikes Peak in my backyard doesn't really hurt, right? right. So <laughs> um, being able to drive up that road and kind of check the road conditions, that's been pretty helpful. I mean, and a lot of things that people don't realize about that road itself. I mean, it sits there obviously year round through all kinds of crazy weather, whether it be massive snowstorms or bright sunny days. So that road changes a lot. There's a lot of bumps and undulations that develop and really move um, from year to year. So going up and kind of seeing where some of those rough spots are and understanding what it's going to feel like come race day. um, That's a big thing in itself. Aside from that, I mean, I'm at, I'm in my house. I got a little VR simulator set up that I run Pikes Peak on for probably in between 30 minutes to an hour a day, just depending on how much time I can squeeze in, which that, that simulation stuff is massive. I mean, that's what I use for um, all my racing, especially Pikes Peak. I mean, having to memorize 156 unique corners um, over a 12 mile race, it's definitely a bit of a challenge in itself. Yeah, it uh, certainly is. I, I mean, I'm not as experienced as you, but I have at least, you know, Dirt Rally and a couple other racing games, not quite simulation games, that have Pikes Peak in them. And yeah, I always end up getting myself lost on the course and forgetting what corner is coming up. And it's a, it's a lot to remember. Oh, yeah. And it's 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 easy to get lost up there. I mean, it's, what we like to say, a lot of the corners kind of come in twos, meaning that you'll have two corners that look really, really similar, but one of them may open up into a flat out fifth gear straightaway where another one's going to tighten up into a hairpin. So you definitely got to know uh, <clears throat> what lies ahead. Otherwise you can get yourself into some trouble. Uh, what like sim, I don't want to call it a game because actual sim racers aren't really games. So what are you, which program are you using? Um, so for Pikes Peak, I've got a custom built 
gaming PC, and I've been using a Seto Corsa. Okay. Um, so it's a pretty accurate driving simulation. I wouldn't say it's as good as iRacing necessarily, but obviously the iRacing stuff's all laser scanned, and the tracks are all exact, and they just haven't scanned Pike's Peak yet. Yeah. But uh, the the Seto Corsa stuff's pretty good. The the track I'm using is actually a mod found on a online. So it's pretty accurate. It's definitely not 100%, but it's it's close enough to where I can go drive up the mountain right now, and you could just drop me anywhere on that road, and I could tell you probably the next four or five corners that lie ahead pretty easily. Cool. That's good to know. That that was more information for me, selfishly, because I, I, okay. I really want to uh, build my own sim racing setup and know which you know which game or program works the best. And I've heard good, yeah. heard good things about a set of Corsa. Yeah, it's pretty good. The physics engine's pretty close to iRacing. I mean, I've still got a really big soft spot for the iRacing stuff just because that's what I've always really used and loved. But the Assetto Course is definitely a close second in my eyes. One more question about uh, Pikes Peak before we move on from that real quick. I do know the... At one point, I kind of looked into the process of like, how do you actually race at Pikes Peak? And it seems like it was kind of a intense setup to get even into the race. Yeah, um, so... The first step is you have to send in what you call, they would call a request for invitation because it's an invitation only race. So it's not just anybody can register and be on the entry list. You have to basically apply, say, here's who I am. Here's what I'm driving, supply pictures of the vehicle, um, list your racing background and all these various things. And then if accepted, they send you an invitation. Um, After you have the invitation, then there's a more lengthy process with, sending in different medical forms and various things about yourself and more of your sponsors and that sort of thing. Um, and it's, it's a pretty limited number. I think I just saw the press release today where there was only 70 some drivers racing in the race this year. Um, so to be one of those 70 guys being able to compete, um, especially because most of the guys are from different countries, not many of them are local. Um, it's definitely an honor. Yeah, no, that's really cool. Yeah. They have to limit it, I suppose, to, you know, a very few amount of drivers because you only get one race day. So there's only so many cars yeah, you can run. Exactly. And it's, uh, it's kind of notorious to later in the day being Colorado summers, the, the weather kind of starts to roll in. So that's where your qualifying runs become pretty critical, making sure that, uh, you get a clean run up early enough in the day where weather's not going to be a factor. Mm-hmm. Oh, I remember I was, I was, uh, on the mountain watching last year when the hailstorm rolled through at, uh, the picnic grounds halfway. Oh man, that was a nightmare. I, heard, I I wasn't up there, but I heard stories, and it was just sounded like it was a mess. Yeah, it was it was crazy. Just it was bright and sunny, and then all of a sudden this dark cloud rolled through, and it just started hailing like crazy. And I don't know who was driving. There was a Subaru that was out on track at that time, and he was still through the hail and everything, just going for it. And I think he got the loudest cheers out of everybody, but anybody there. You got to, man. You got to be a gladiator for that race. I mean, it's there's so many variables that can just catch you off guard. So you get that one shot. Yep, that's all you get. Uh, I do have one more question about Pikes Peak, or at least I did before I forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is the problem with going off script. I always, you know, I forget my questions. Right. Well, if I remember, we'll come back to it. Uh, I want to t- right. touch briefly about your uh, driving instructor background how long have you been doing that oh man so let let me think back for a second so probably about seven or eight years now at least professionally seven or eight years obviously when i was having some success in karting and things like that i was always kind of give little pointers here and there to guys but 
Um, the first time I ever really got paid to do it, it was right out of high school. I, uh, I was in contact with Bob Bondurant, who runs the Bob Bondurant Racing School down in Chandler, Arizona. And uh, just kind of a quick history on Bob. I mean, he's done it all. I mean, he won Le Mans driving for Ford and the GTs, and then he, he drove for Ferrari and Formula One. I mean, he's done a lot of really, really cool, iconic things within our sport. So I was in touch with him, and then as soon as I graduated high school, he invited me down to kind of tour the facility and um, after I went down there for a tour, he offered me a job to be one of his driving instructors, which to be handpicked to instruct for the Bob Bondurant school at 17 years old was just absolutely incredible. Yeah. I wouldn't um, think that's very common at all. No, I think I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest guys to ever work there. So it was definitely an incredible experience. I just packed up everything I owned, which being a high schooler wasn't really much. <laughs> and, uh, moved down to Phoenix and kind of started making making my life out there, which was really, really cool. It was definitely um, a bit of a humbling experience at first. I mean, there was a lot of really good drivers, obviously, working at that school, but um, made a lot of really good friendships down there. And definitely some of the guys that I worked with, especially my one of my best friends, Robert Stout, who also worked down there at the time, um, we made a really good bond and we lived together while we were down there. Um, he's another guy that's done a lot of amazing stuff. I mean, he's a world challenge champion. He's raced everything from wing pavement sprint cars to off-road racing and a lot of sports car stuff, racing the Grand Am series. Um, so to get to drive with guys like that on a daily basis, and um, I mean, it definitely keeps you sharp and you really end up upping each other's game in the process just because somebody will find a little bit of an edge and the other guy's got to try to keep up. So it was, uh, it was a ton of fun. Yeah, that sounds like it. Yeah, learning from... Learning from your peers definitely uh, is something I've grown to understand just through, because I've been doing the Time Attack series down there at PPIR, and just over the last couple of years of, you know, you you make a lap, you go back into the pits, and then everybody's around talking about, oh, this section you do this, and everybody's trading secrets and stuff like that, and, you know, trying to make everybody faster, so when you're with... Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, it's worthwhile, I mean, it's 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 kind of the nature of the sport, right? There's always going to be somebody that's the fastest and everybody else is trying to catch up. So, right. Uh, it's, it's just, this never ending battle. There's never a perfect lap. No, there never is. There's always more room for improvement and going back to the, you know, Pikes Peak or the time attack series at Pikes Peak. Uh, I imagine a lot of listeners that I'm going to get on the first few episodes are going to be from there. Cause you know, most of the people I know are <laughs> at this point time attackers, right? Like, I, a lot of my friends that I have are just from that series, which is pretty amazing. But since I have you here, I'm going to try to get a couple tips from you. So what would you give a beginner driver, a person that just came out their first time doing time attack, one piece of advice would you give them? Oh, man. I mean, the biggest thing for somebody that's really beginning in the sport, I mean, there's it's can be really overwhelming and intimidating in a way. So especially if you're just beginning, don't immediately go out there and expect to be one of the fastest guys. I mean, there's, there's definitely anomalies where that can be the plate that, that, that can take place. Um, but if it's one of your first events, just go out there and, and have fun. And like you said, I mean, it's such a really cool group, especially with the time attack series, um, make friendships, talk to people within the paddock and just really get to be more involved with the sport and start understanding some of the different adjustments you maybe can make to your car, but, um, just have fun with it. Don't become, too entrapped and trying to be competitive and focusing too much on the lap times. Um, Cause if you're doing that from a novice level, it can become 
kind of discouraging in a way and it can kind of work. Yeah, because I've met a lot of people that they claim to be fast drivers and as soon as they get out on track, they're really slow and they become, you know, disheartened at the fact of, you know, they, they thought they were fast and it's like when you get out on track, it's a, it's just a whole different environment than it is, you know, on the street or in the mountains or anything like that. Yeah. hundred percent. It's, it's, there's always, there's always going to be those guys that, um, talk a big game, but I mean, that's, that's one of the things I love about racing is it's, it's so definitive. The results are plain as day. There's no arguing. It's yep. That guy was quicker than that guy. End of story. So, well, well, you uh, say that, but there are, you know, the, the bench racers that, Oh, that guy was cheating or that guy did this or, you know, there's always going to be that in the background too. Don't forget. <laughs> oh yeah. There's always that. There's always that. But the end, the day there's only one guy on top that's very true so we go from beginners to maybe somebody more advanced somebody that's been out you know they've done a season or two of time attack what's something that you see drivers do especially people that come from the street and then onto track driving that they could really improve upon um i mean there's oh man there's so many different things i mean <laughs> one of the things that we preach and all of the racing schools i've worked for is just really focus on where you're placing your eyes. I mean, using your eyes to gain benefit is super huge. Um, even somebody that has a fair bit of experience, it's really common for that driver to drop their eyes, be looking right off the hood of the vehicle or just not quite far enough ahead. So they're driving really reactively rather than proactively trying to plan out that route. So um, the more calm and collected you can be, I mean, if you watch the best drivers in the world, they make it look easy, right? They're not frantic and sawing at the wheel and making it look difficult. They make it look like they're going for that Sunday drive. Yep. So it's just really understanding that you need to try to just regulate your breathing, get your eyes up. And it's a very aggressive and kind of crazy environment, trying to take it down to as low of a level of aggression as you can and controlling your nerves. Um, that's definitely a huge part of it. Yeah, that's definitely something I've, I've struggled with is both of those things. You know, the nerves getting to me, especially, you know, you're waiting in line for your next lap and then the, the eyes dropping too. I just cannot seem to keep my eyes up. Yeah. Uh, one way I've been trying to train myself is just like, as I'm driving on the street, you know, working, on keeping my eyes up, just working on like that muscle memory of when you're in the car, keep your eyes up kind of thing. I don't know if that really translates all that well, but that's, I'm trying to anyways. Definitely learning to use your eyes and keep them up. is not an easy thing to do. And um, even though I've been racing my entire life, really, it's something that I still, out loud in my helmet, remind myself to do, keep your eyes up, keep your eyes up. Um, especially as you get farther into a session and that fatigue starts to kick in, it's just, uh, it's super, super critical. Well, uh, I think the phone call is deciding we're, we're going to end this pretty soon. So, all right. So one last thing, that question that I, uh, thought about earlier and then forgot, uh, for Pike's peak, do you have a goal in mind? Is, do you have a time in mind that you want to beat, or is your goal just to get to the top? Uh, man, I mean, I've been asked that a bunch leading up to this race, and honestly, I mean, the number one goal clearly is going to be just getting that car to the finish line unscathed. Um, but selfishly, as a professional driver, I mean, I, I definitely want to have some a level of success, you know? So um, <clears throat> I think realistically, if I can run somewhere within the low... 10 minute range at 10, 20, 10, 10, something like that. Um, I think that's fairly realistic, but selfishly, I mean, I want to, I want to break that 10 minute barrier. I want to be part of that nine minute club. I don't, I don't know necessarily if it's possible, 
Um, I've been driving the car now and getting some seat time in it. It's definitely quick. I don't know if it's nine minute quick, but uh, we're yeah, going to nine out. minutes is a fast car on that mountain. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's something like eight, 80 miles an hour average or something. So it's, it's a lofty wow. goal. Um, I, I think personally I can do it as a driver. I've got that road memorized and um, I've had success in a lot of other different forms of motorsport and uh, at numerous different levels, including the professional level. So um, I, I think it's definitely a lofty goal. I don't think it's impossible. Um, honestly, I probably will be a little bit disappointed with myself if I can't quite get there. Um, but as long as I can be somewhere in the low tens and get there without any big issues, I'll be pretty pumped. Awesome. Well, that sounds good. And, uh, I'll be on the radio listening to your time. Uh, I'm going to be up at Pikes Peak. I'm going to be at the halfway picnic area. So I'll be along the sidelines cheering you on right there. All right, man. I'll be, I'll be sure to be coming through there as quick as I can. I know that's one of our highest trap speed areas. So hopefully yeah, I'll go yeah. coming by somewhere around 130, 140 miles an hour in that big beast. Well, cool. Thanks, Tommy, for being on the show. Is there anybody, uh, any sponsors you want to plug or anything like that? Um, yeah, I mean, just especially for this hill climb effort, it's been a, a huge team effort. I mean, first and foremost, I really want to thank um, the guy that's been building this car. He's been really kind of working as a one-man band getting this thing um, to the level where it's at now. Jim Lighthouser, he's our kind of lead shop guy. So huge thank you to Jim. Um, Hoosier Tires, they've hooked us up with a ton of tires. And uh, it's going to be hopefully the best rubber out on the mountain for that day. And um, couldn't do it without those guys. Bill Ussery Motors, they've been super supportive as well, um, as well as just obviously Pikes Peak International Raceway. It's uh, something that they're giving me the time, really kind of the time off. Granted, I'm still at the track working, but they're giving me time <laughs> off work to pursue this race and um, really live out my dream. Whenever I'm doing something else around the world racing, they give me the time away from my chief instructor job to to go make them and myself look good. So um, huge thank you to everybody at PPIR as well. Awesome. And if anybody wants to follow you leading up to the race, where would they do that at? Um, so I'm on pretty much every form of social media there is. If it's on Facebook, um, I've just got a Tommy Boylo official fan page. Um, hopefully you can get the spelling for them in the, the links. Cause it's yeah, a, I'll put yeah, that in the show notes for sure. Difficult last name to spell. Got every vowel in it. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> So that's my Facebook page. Otherwise, my Instagram is just Tommy Boylow. And then my uh, Twitter is Tommy Boylow 34. They're all kind of inter- intertwined. So it'll be uh, kind of the same same sharing of all the different outlets that we that we send out. Awesome. Yeah, I'll have those in the show notes if anybody wants to follow you. And once again, thanks for being on the show, Tommy. Awesome, Matt. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. All right. You have a good one. All right. Take it easy. All right, and I want to thank Wheels the Band out of Fort Collins for the use of our theme song, Colors, off their album, Traveler. You can find them at wheelstheband.bandcamp.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Religion of Speed podcast on wherever it is you get your podcast from these days. I'm guessing Spotify, because that's the main one. I don't know anymore. All right, guys, thanks for listening. This has been the Religion of Speed podcast. I've been Matt. Peace. Peace.